lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. Today we've got a really interesting guest. We've got Dr. Gross. She's a nationally recognized family, child development, and human behavior expert. She's an author and lecturer who's frequently called upon by national and regional media to offer her insights on topics involving family relationships, education, behavior, and developmental issues. Dr. Gross is, she contributes to broadcast, print, and online media, including her TV talk show, Let's Talk with Dr. Gail Gross on PBS, and her radio show, talk show, Let's Talk with Dr. Gail Gross on CNN. She's earned accolades from distinguished leaders, such as the Dalai Lama, who presented her with the first Spirit of Freedom Award in 1998. And Houston's Women's Magazine named her one of Houston's most influential women of 2016. And she's written two award-winning books. The first is How to Build Your Baby's Brain, A Parent's Guide to Using New Gene Science to Raise a Smart, Secure, and Successful Child. And I told Dr. Gross, I said, I'm, I'm a new grandmother. So I've got that book and I'm very much, when I finish it, I will pass it on. But it's that book is the winner of the 2021 Independent Press Awards in the category of How To. It's a golden winner of the 2020 Next Generation Indie Book Award, and it's ranked number one by Book Authority for 2020, Best New Parenting Books to Read. And the second is The Only Way Out is Through a 10-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. And that's not just a book about grieving, but it's a guide to help you successfully navigate transitions, which we all have. And that book is award-winning, too. It's won the 2021 Independent Press Award, and it's the same number of, of awards. So thank you so much, Dr. Gross, for being with us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Leah. I'm delighted to be here. I've been looking forward to it. I do want to make a small correction. Uh, my radio show was not on CNN. It um, uh, really on all, we, we went online and we were on uh, global channels, but on top of it, we were uh, started here in Houston. And so uh, I, and my, my um, talk show was PBS. That's correct. Oh. Well, thank you for making that correction. Um, it's you know I was just, that's what you get from reading from the bio instead of checking everything out. But you know, it, there's so many different things that we could talk about. And glancing, and I, I mentioned I am the recipient of your book, and and you know what I've noticed why I was so interested in having you on the show is because everything that you deal with in, in the books it, it talks about emotions and how we interact emotionally. And I honestly believe that the the global pandemic that we were in for the last two years has really changed to some degree 
how we interact with each other. I remember when we came back, you know, first we were shut down from five to six weeks and then we came back and I noticed the road rage, people getting back out on the, the, the streets and everybody was mad if you were in their lane. And, and it seems like, you know, they forgot how to play nice. Um, practice makes perfect, you know? So it, when you think about with the people that you've worked with, how are we relying on people's feelings rather than the objective truth? Oh, that's a brilliant question. A wonderful question. Thank you for that question. Lee. I could, I could write a, a new book just on that. And I sort of am in my, my new book is um, it's never about what it's about. And the subtitle is understanding the language of feelings. So, yes, this is a wonderful question. First, let me just say that a lot of people are walking around now with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of the uncertainty we've experienced and the isolation we've experienced through COVID. You know, human beings are social animals. We're primates, and people just don't like to hear that, and they don't like us to say things like that, but... Scientifically, we now know that we are primates. If we take a look at the genome and we look at our DNA and we look at the DNA of our genus, our group of primates, which are apes, um, we are cousins, first cousins, to the orangutan, to the chimpanzee, and to the bonobo. And we are the closest to the bonobo. And there's literally just 1.2% difference in our DNA and the DNA of the bonobo. The interesting thing about this is that the bonobo is a highly social primate. And ironically, they reconcile differences by making love. It sort of reminds you of the 70s where we said, make love, not war. And, I, and the bonobos really do. This is how they reconcile their problems, whatever they are. And so they are very peaceful primates, the most peaceful. They don't kill their own. They don't uh, fight over territory. They don't uh, have, uh, they're not male dominant. They're female dominant. Their alpha uh, uh, chimp, their alpha bonobo is actually a female and she dominates the whole group and therefore the males behave quite well because they won't have access to the females if the uh, the alpha female says no and uh, contrary to human females which is something we're just now changing towards the bonobo females stick together they do everything together they take care of each other and because the women stick together, they develop this power base. So we, we can see that we as primates are, yes, we are very social. And when we, are, we were isolated during COVID, we were not able to connect socially with our friends, our family. Some of us couldn't go to funerals. Some of us couldn't see our elders parents in, in, in um, assistant living. So there were all kinds of restrictions which stopped us from social exchange. And it was had a, a, a really a depressing, a, 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 
saddening, if you will, effect on all of us. And if we look at our brains after isolation, we can see that there is a, a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that develops. Now, because it's temporary, the post-traumatic stress would be temporary. But if it was consistent and it happened over a long period of time, the change in our brain architecture and our impulse control would be permanent, similar to a um, person who experiences consistent war, where they, uh, we used to call this shell-shocked, where they come home. Um, in fact, it was Freud um, and Jung who talked quite a bit about this, Carl Jung. And in that period of time, World War One, we talked about this as shell-shocked. Now we can see in the brain these changes. So basically, we're all walking around with this post-traumatic stress disorder in degrees relative to this isolation and uncertainty. And then add on that the economic problems we're facing and and the um, social problems that we're facing. And people really are not as optimistic as they would normally be. And there are things we can do to alleviate the stress that's causing these problems. And there are things that we can do that will alleviate the post-traumatic stress. But that requires us to take ourselves in hand and do some inner work, such as stress reduction techniques of breathing, yoga, meditation, things we can do for ourselves to lower our stress. And then this is where we get back to my new book, which is explaining why the brain operates like this. But about 100,000 years ago, we developed a large prefrontal cortex, and that's what separated us from all other apes and all other primates. So we have this great thinking capacity, and it is that that made the difference with what we accomplished in the world. If we look at baby orangutans or baby um, bonobos or any other kind of primate chimps, we notice that their gestures are the same as ours. They kiss the same way we do. They make love the same way we do. They have their feelings hurt. The chimpanzees, even um, Jane Goodall, studied them for a number of years, and she followed them for four years by video and, and tracked this, what they call the chimpanzee four-year war, where they fought over territory and actually killed off in four years the opposing chimpanzees so that they could then move into their territory of richer foods and fruits and vegetables, which they did. So they were very similar. And and in us, still from our earliest evolution, is in in this place where we keep our emotions, not to be too technical, but to call it the amygdala. In the amygdala, that's where our flight or fight lives. And that's the primary primitive response to danger that we still have within us. So because we still have it within us, but our challenges are quite different today. I mean, we're not worried about being eaten by a lion or a tiger. Today, we might get a ticket from a policeman 
and we can't run away. We have to stand there and, and take the ticket and be upset. And we are, when we get upset, we overproduce many hormones, but one of the primary stress hormones is cortisol. We need cortisol for function, but when we overproduce it, then we are in a place of high alert and the body is preparing itself to either fight or run away. In fact, the amygdala actually gets larger. It puffs up and takes over being the captain of the ship when we're upset or haven't had a good night's sleep, whereas our prefrontal cortex, which is this part of us that made us different from all other primates, our executive function and critical thinking and abstract thinking, that process in the prefrontal cortex slows down when we're stressed. So at the end of the day, when we are no longer able to get rid of that cortisol by running away or fighting uh, our, our conflict, or fighting our way out of our conflict, that cortisol stays in our body. And it does two things. It changes brain architecture and impulse control. And it also has a huge effect on our immunity because it needs to overproduce. The body needs to overproduce cortisol to cope with the stress, and which is our survival technique. And so it scavenges the body looking for more cortisol. And where does it take it? Where is the largest, basically, pot of it, amount of it? where our immunities lie. And that makes us vulnerable to illness. So when we are stressed, may may it be uh, having a fight with a friend or a mate or a political fight or a divorce or a death or a bad night's sleep, whatever is stressing us, our body still operates in the exact same primitive way as it did when we were primates. And it over when we were early primates before we developed this larger prefrontal cortex. So you would say the early forms of us, the early Homo sapiens, and and there, of which there were twenty different variants. And so we are no different emotionally than our cavemen brothers. We operate in the same very primitive way. So when you're upset, you're basically I don't care if you're Einstein. I don't care how intelligent you are, your intellect stop, slows down, and, and that which would normally captain your ship is basically in a slump, and your emotions take over. So no matter how smart you are, when you're upset, you're thinking emotionally, and your amygdala is where you're coming from. In fact, a number of years ago, there was a great article in the New York Times. And the article was, is it really all the amygdala? And the answer is basically yes. Because no matter how smart you are, we are emotional beings. And when we're stressed, whether from work or from relationships or global problems or politics or illness or death, we can't think intellectually anymore. We are responding in a reactive way emotionally. And it's those emotions that get us into trouble because they're, the, they're primitive. 
in their makeup and irrational in, in their uh, substance. So this is how we get into trouble. And this is also why we're all walking around with post-traumatic stress disorder, because we're dealing with being isolated social animals. Well, I think you make you know some really good points, and one of the things that I see at the Brain Performance Center is that mental health correlates with physical health, and a lot of times people don't understand that because if the, if you have a problem with your heart, what is the first thing that you do? You get in and you see a doctor. But if you're having a problem with your mental health, you don't necessarily do that. You have all this negative chit-chat going on in your brain. Suck it up, buttercup. You know, power through, man. And instead of a more positive conversation that it's okay to not be okay. And the emotional and the mental health feeds into the physical health. And if we can start to understand and what you talk about the amygdala, that has a lot to do with, you know, the the positive and the negative. And here's a true fact, Dr. Gross. Every day we have three times more positive events in our life that happen than negative. But what does the brain hold on to? And what does the brain remember? The negative. That's, you know, it's the same brain that we had back in the caveman days, except now we don't we don't walk out the cave door and say eat or be eaten. But we still have two thirds of the cells in the right hemisphere scanning for danger, looking look to protect us. So, you know, when we talk about the amygdala, that's something we talk about. I try to talk a lot to our clients about and helping them understand that emotional control is, has a lot to do with the way your brain's working and a lot to do with the way your body's working. I'm amazed at how, when you can balance that communication between the brain and the body, on that intercellular level, everything just works better. Well, you know, we have a process in our brain. It's all, again, brilliant. What you said is just brilliantly and, and very on point. We have, uh, we can override, the brain basically is pro- a problem solver. So because it's a problem solver, all day long, it's wandering around trying to solve our problems. So even when we're not conscious of it, it's wandering, wandering. But because it's problem solving, it's wandering not from positive to positive. It's wandering from negative to negative. So when the brain wanders like that, we have a process within us that can override the negative. And we, but to do that, we have to focus the brain. And this is why things such as meditation and yoga and breathing, that anything that's focused stops the brain from wandering in a negative direction. And because it's focusing on one single point, what it actually does is it allows the endorphins to start pumping forward. And therefore, we have all the positive chemical help within our own body to de-stress. So now we are, we call this the default network, D-E-F-A-U-L-T network. So the default network 
overrides the negative. And because we are meditating or focusing on our breath or on yoga techniques, whatever we're doing that focuses our brain on a single point stops it from wandering. And when it stops wandering as a problem solver from negative to negative to negative, now the endorphins can kick in. And when the endorphins can come, we kick in, we get, you know, all the good stuff, the stuff that makes us ha- happy and reduces stress and makes us feel joy. And we have epinephrine and norepinephrine, all these things that help us. And so that's why things such as meditation are so helpful to de-stress. And people often say to me, well, what about the run- running or what about walking? That helps too, but in a different way. And we all run and walk at the wrong time of the day. We all jump out of bed, wake ourselves up early so we don't get a good sleep. We force ourselves up at four in the morning or five in the morning or six in the morning. I must add, not me, but most people, not I, but most people. And when they do that, they are already stressing their body. And when they exercise first thing in the morning, they're not taking the edge off of the problems of the day. They're they're really taking the edge off of not sleeping enough in the morning. And so we should exercise at the end of the day. At the end of the day, when we have this buildup of cortisol in the bloodstream, that really, if it's not allowed to find a way out, we're not punching the tiger in the nose, we're running away from it. But if we do some physical exercise, it takes that edge off. It deals with the overabundance of cortisol, and it allows us to work through it. And so it's the end of the day that we should be exercising, not in the morning. And we should get enough sleep because just by not getting enough sleep, we're stressing the body. And by stressing the body, we're overproducing cortisol. And so, and other stress hormones, not simply cortisol. And we're lowering our immunities. And because cortisol has got to come from somewhere, remember, and we also, if it's consistent stress that we're doing to our bodies, then that consistency will change not just temporarily, but forevermore, our brain architecture and our impulse control. And, you know, well, we often see people who are very healthy, we think, and, and they work out. They, we, we, people say, oh, I see them in the gym, 6 o'clock every morning, they're working out. They, they did this right. They did this right. How did they die? How did they have a heart attack? How did they get cancer? Well, because they stress their body to work out. We should work out when we are de-stressing and we are stressing our body by forcing it up too early. We need eight to 10 hours of sleep a night. And Harvard wrote a fascinating article called the, um, the title of it was The Sleepless Society, speaking about our, our global culture, and we're all waking up too early and going to bed too late. Well, thank you for bringing up sleep because sleep is the foundation. <laughs> it's the foundation of your brain. And, you know, all day long, those neurons and dendrites are wiring and firing, and they're creating that toxic weight waste. And the only time that those little glial cells can come out and clean up that mess is when you are asleep. And so much research now is linking insomnia to Alzheimer's. So, you know, I think that is something that 
I view as being that's a lifestyle choice to put yourself on a sleeping schedule. But I've had many people tell me it's it's much more complicated than that. So but but we've got about four minutes left in the before we take a break. Is there anything more you'd like to build on the importance of sleep? Well, that's a great uh, thing. Let me say this. If you were at a board meeting and you had to fly there, say you were flying to um, a board meeting in New York and you, you got there and you were very, very tired and you had to get up early in the morning for the board meeting. So you only had about seven hours of sleep or six hours of sleep and you go to the board meeting and you're sitting at this board meeting, you are at a huge disadvantage from people who have had a good night's sleep the night before, perhaps people who live in New York. And so they are all operating out of their prefrontal cortex, no problem, because they're not tired and they're not stressed. But if you're tired, then what happens? The amygdala puffs up, you are therefore stressed and you're feeling emotional. And so you're thinking more emotionally, just like a child who's cranky. You know, when a, a child doesn't get a good night's sleep, what do we say? You're cranky, you need a nap. When you don't get a good night's sleep, you're cranky and you need a nap. And so at the end of the day, we need to rest the body because if we don't, it's stress. But it's not that it's just stress, but that whole flight or fight system is kicked in. And then we are overproducing cortisol and it's affecting our thinking. So now our prefrontal cortex slows down and we're, work, we're operating much more emotionally. Well, and we, you know, we all do that. We all come to points in our life where we're stressed out or we push ourselves beyond that point. And then we look back and we look at the decisions that we've made or how we reacted in that important, whether it's in a personal relationship or a professional relationship, you know, we'll look back and we'll say, well, that I wish I could redo that. (laughs) That wasn't Lee at her best. But but we've all been there. And I think that when I think of sleep and I think of, I mentioned strategies, going to sleep at the same time every night, having your sleep routine, you know, naps can be, they can run interference on a good night's sleep. But everybody has to figure out what their sleep routine is. I mean, I can take a bath at 10 o'clock in the evening or at seven o'clock in the evening, and that's a signal for my brain. Oh, we're getting ready to go to bed. I know it's a little confusing if I do that at seven p.m. because um, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, it's too early. But <laughs> so we all need to have our triggers for our sleep. We're going to take a break, but before we do, you know, if there's one takeaway. One short takeaway that you want our listeners to have from the first half of the show, what is it? The one takeaway I would say is that we have to remember that we are emotional, social animals, and therefore we have to learn how to self-manage our feelings so that we can make good decisions for our lives. That is a great point to take a break on. And when we'll come back, we'll talk more about that because decision-making is a challenge we all face. We'll be back after these messages. 
dog or cat getting too dorgy-porgy or chubby? It seems people aren't the only ones battling obesity. Our pets are putting on the pounds as well. Research shows that 44% of dogs and 57% of cats are overweight. Some might say if your dog is overweight, you probably aren't getting enough exercise. Veterinarians suggest in order to fight the battle of the ball, pet owners should change how rather than how much their pet eats. First, you should avoid feeding your pet penguin or fatty and greasy people food. New types of food bowls have also been invented to encourage pets to forage for their kibble. Studies indicate that foraging or digging around for food stimulates your pet's body and brain, which helps them to lose weight. What's another word that means to forage? Snuzzle. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for staying with us. Before break, we were talking about how the lack of sleep or when the adrenal glands start kicking all that cortisol out into our body and we get all stressed out, how that changes the way that we interact emotionally and how we make decisions. So I'm sure we can all stop and think about that they're friends that we that we cherish, that we truly enjoy. But particularly with the elections coming up in the fall, we didn't we don't always agree with them. And when you think about how you let that emotional course take shape that that relationship, how you know, Dr. Gross, what advice do you have for us? How do we keep that emotional system in balance? so that we don't impact our relationships. And even as an adult child, those get out of balance. Yes, you know, your questions are wonderful, Lou. Let me say this, that we are emotional beings, but what separates us from all other primates is our large prefrontal cortex. And that large prefrontal cortex is why we stay immature into our 20s. Adolescence, in fact, lasts around for male until the age of 24, believe it or not. Young men still like a good hug from their mom. And the, um, the, the reason we stay immature so long is because we're one of the few species that is basically born unfinished. We're not really baked out of the oven. We are, if we were completely finished, our heads would be so large that we couldn't be born vaginally. We couldn't go down the birth canal. So because we have this very large prefrontal cortex that makes us different from all other primates, as a result, God in his wisdom uh, had our, our development stretch out over a number of years. So we're not really finished until about 24. If we understand our own biology, then we know that a lot of young people that are, are activists or very involved in politics and so forth, many of them are operating from a, a, a lot of passion, a lot of, and a, a lot of uh, risk orientation, because until around 24, you're much more risk-oriented. You feel more omnipotent, 
because that part of the brain isn't finished developing yet. It's only finished after about 24, which is why we worry about our teenage children. We worry about them because we know that they're, they take more risks and therefore are in more danger than, say, a 30-year-old. So it's very important to, when you're having conversations with people to think of that in terms of where they are in their development, where they are in their biology, and to understand your own. And I developed something called the empathic process, which is a way to communicate with family members and friends that is without defense. Nobody is defending anybody. Nobody is attacking anybody. We just allow each person an equal amount of time to speak. We make eye contact. We even may touch hands, be more intimate. And then we speak. We speak. Say there are three people. Everybody speaks a bit or four people. Then each person, if there's three, will speak um, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And then the final time, we'll all try to problem solve together. And so if we don't attack and we don't defend, we don't personalize things, this is where we get into trouble. If we don't personalize things, then we can solve that problem one chunk at a time. And if we personalize things, we're not even listening to each other anymore. Now we're, we're defending ourselves. And of course, when you're defending yourself, you're in a fight. So at the end of the day, I have many friends who disagree with me on many different things, but I never, I never take it personally and I never go into uh, discussing with them things that I know are, are triggers that will create problems. If, if we can have a communication that allows us to discuss with one another our positions without trying to change each other, then that's a great thing because we can all learn from each other. But if they're trigger things that other people cannot, then stay away from them. Well, what I hear you say is we do not judge. That's right. Because everyone is different. You know, we can't, if we really love somebody unconditionally, we can't say we will love you only if you are whatever. We'll love you only if you behave in this way. We'll love you only if you do this. I mean, that's, that's really a, a, a censored love. But in reality, unconditional love is I love you personally for who you are. And you don't, not for what you do, not for what you say, not for anything like that. Just for, I, I love you just for uh, personality, just for who you are with me. So once we make it personal, we take it away from that. Well, and I think when you say personal, I hear once we make it authentic, because that's one of the things that I I work with a lot of people with depression and anxiety, and what they really struggle with is being true to themselves. It, it I mean that that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to be true to yourself, and if you can't be true to yourself, you can't be true to anybody else. That's right, and so one of the signs of mental health 
is the authentic self. When you are your authentic self, you're self-actualized. Now you listen to your own rhythm and therefore your own authority. But the problem we're having now is that on campuses and so forth, where there's a lot of passion and a lot of activism, people are not listening to other people and they're disliking other people based on those people's political views or social views or whatever. And so they're making a judgment against a person simply because they don't like their political persuasion or they don't like their social persuasion. And, you know, if, if you're walking down that part of the street, then you become very one-sided. And Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist, MD, told us that the greatest danger in our world is the danger of one-sidedness. We, can't, we cannot operate as a whole human or as a whole country or as a whole world if we're one-sided. If there was only one political party, if there was only one religion, if there was only one whatever, one government, it would be very dangerous because the danger in all of that is that we would be taken over by um, uh, our own feelings. Um, well, and we- not to interrupt you, but I have a theory on that one-sidedness. I think that one-sidedness comes from one thing, fear. We're so right. afraid of the other right. side and that that and it keeps us that fear keeps us keeps those adrenal glands kicking out that cortisol keeps us exactly. stuck and that fight flight or, or freeze mode. Exactly. And so we're losing out. Our young people are losing out because they're not hearing a different opposing viewpoints. Everybody risks, you know, losing their job or risk losing a friend or a family member. You know, people often say to me, Dr. Gross, our family is coming over together on Thanksgiving. Everybody has a different political view. How do we handle it? And I always tell them to tell their relatives and themselves to leave their views at the door and just make the holiday about being together, being with family. You know, um, our family gets 13 of us get together every Thanksgiving. We're of every single religion you can imagine. We're of every single political position that you can imagine. And we all have a wonderful time together. And the thing of it is, we remember why we're there. We're there because we love each other and we learn from each other. Sometimes we just have wonderful conversations. And that lasts into the wee hours of the morning because we learn from each other. Well, open heart, open mind. Open heart, open mind. Exactly. And I, I know that, you know, that the, what Jung tells us about the one-sidedness causing danger, he goes even further and he says, this is what causes war. This is what causes uh, atomic war. This is this is the real Satan, the one sidedness in our thinking. We if if you as a person are disowning 
half of yourself. If you think you're all in the right and somebody else is all in the wrong, or you think you're, you're all light and the other person is all dark, or you think of yourself as a country is all perfect and the other countries are all imperfect, if you, or your religion is best and the other religions are not, if you go from that perspective, you're disowning half of yourself. And now you're operating on half of yourself. So it's weakening. There's a very famous little children's story. I won't bore you with the whole story, but I'll just tell you the small part of it, where this little boy is basically born to be the savior of this town in the Middle Ages. And he's born to be the hero hero because a dragon is has constantly threatened this, this little town. And the... Um, Mother Superior of this, these sisters are keeping the dragon locked up in a cave, but they're, he's released by an evil sister. And so now he and the little boy are confronting each other. And the little boy is just a little boy. And the dragon is the size of the building. And the little boy looks at the dragon and he thinks to himself, oh, boy, what will I do? I mean, there's no way that I can fight this dragon He's the side of the building, size of the building. And I'm just a little boy. And so the little boy then surrenders and he says, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to let the dragon in. And the dragon enters the little boy. And now the little boy is the size of the building. And so he is strengthened by the addition of the dragon. And now, because he's completely aware of what he did deliberately by surrendering to the dragon, now he can say, I don't have, I'm whole. I'm not all light. I'm not all dark. I'm, I'm a human. I'm, I'm all these things. And I don't have to deny half of myself because it's only when I deny half of myself that I'm doomed to act it out. If I know where that part of myself resides, if I've integrated that dragon inside of me, I don't have to slay it. I don't have to kill the dragon. I can know where it is consciously, and I can use it deliberately when I need to have extra strength or power, but it won't overwhelm me, and, and I won't project it out onto others, onto other people, onto other, to, on, onto other countries, onto other politics. No, I can I integrate it inside of myself. I know where it resides, and now I can consciously and deliberately use it to my benefit when I need to. That's what being whole is. This is what Carl Jung called individuation. Well, and that brings to mind another story. And it's a story that that I've heard from a yoga teacher. And she talked about, you know, we have two animals that live with inside of us. We all do. We have the wolf and the wolf comes into play when we feel danger. And then we have the lamb and the lamb comes into play when we, we feel nurturing and warmth. And she said, you know, a lot of times we'll see that the wolf will, will take over when we're least expecting it. Or the lamb will take over when it, we least, least expect it. And we just have to stop and ask ourselves one question. And that question is, which animal are you feeding? Because well, if you... Go ahead. If you've got all those negative thoughts, those self-defeating <laughs> thoughts, and you're feeding that wolf, 
then he's going to come or she's going to come out growling, hungry and ready to pounce. And it may be. Yeah, go ahead. I just said, that's a wonderful story. And but the thing of it is. You're if you look at the wolf as a negative, then you're seeing half of yourself as dark. But if you look at the wolf in a positive, if you say to yourself that we are all things, that's the human dilemma. We're all good and bad. We're all happy and sad. But being, but having the wolf in us is really not that it's bad. It's that it's really in shadow. It's disowned. It's all the pieces we've disowned of ourselves. And so we've got to bring those pieces back to ourselves so we can be whole. Now we can choose consciously. We can be conscious and choose which part of ourselves to use when it's inappropriate to use our soft lamb if we're having a business meeting. And it may not, and we may need the power of the wolf, but not the wolf that's going to bite somebody, but the wolf who's going to be clear eyed, can see in the dark, can give us, you know, can help us navigate dangerous waters. So at the end of the day, it's not that half of us is bad and half of us is good. It's that half of us is in shadow, is unknown to us. And we typically disown that part of ourselves. We all want to be just good and light and lamb, but actually we are all things. That's the human dilemma. And if we disown half of ourselves, we're operating at a deficit. I have a friend who's a great race car driver. And I always, when I explain it to her, I always say, it's as if you're you're operating your car on half a piston. You need the whole car because if we keep our shadow material disowned, we're doomed to act it out irrationally. For example, I don't know if you ever think of these um, people that sort of tell other people how to live and they go on television and they always say, oh, uh, this person is a bad person. They're an adulterer. And then they point the finger at this person. And then, of course, what does it turn out to be later in time that they themselves committed adultery? So we say in psychology, the pointing finger has three fingers pointing back, because if you're highly charged, if you're upset about something, then it's likely that it's a projection. The way you tell is if you're highly charged. And if it's a projection, it's something about you that you're disowning out there on other people. So a lot of times people in a culture or in a city or a state or or in a country decide on one person as being the scapegoat for all their negative feelings. And they keep saying, it's this person's fault, it's this point. And they're all pointing the finger at that person. And they're using that person to reduce all of their hostile feelings about themselves or all the problems that they have within themselves. It's sort of like a big smoke screen. But in the end, if they get conscious, they can see their own disowned material not project it out, but integrate it back into themselves. And by integrating that back into themselves, they're free because now they're conscious and they're not doomed to act out that bad behavior. I mean, we all know of some of these people on some of these television shows who are just saying, this one is a bad guy, this one's a bad guy. And then turns out that they have to be fired from their job for doing the very same thing that they're 
telling you that other people are doing. So at the end of the day, being conscious is the key. Being, uh, being mindful and aware of yourself, that's the key. You know, many times a woman will say, gosh, she just divorced her husband. He was an alcoholic. And funny, her first husband was an alcoholic also. And then suddenly she's starting to date again. And ironically, she's dating another alcoholic. Now, what's wrong with this picture? The thing is, she's projecting unconsciously onto basically a blank face the characteristics that appeal to her. She doesn't recognize them because they're disowned. But she's, she's projecting out onto a blank face alcoholic. So she's attracted to that. But if she brings that back, recognizes it and brings it back objectively and integrates it into herself consciously, she will stop projecting it out and she'll stop gravitating to that kind of a person. And now she's opened the door for a healthy relationship with someone who's darling and handsome and, and adorable and not an alcoholic. <laughs> so that's how it works. And so if recognize objectively what we're disowning about ourselves and take that disowned material back, our shadow material. Not that it's bad. It's just in shadow. It's disowned. It's unknown to us. If we bring that back, now we can operate consciously and that's health. Well, I do believe in the law of attraction, and I think that we all need to be aware of that. You know, we've got like six minutes left, and I think it would be a good use of our time just to touch on your two books. I mean, you've done amazing work with them both. The Maybe you can just give us a couple of takeaways from each one, because both books are available on Amazon. So, you know, just give us a couple of takeaways so people would know whether it's a book that they might find beneficial in their own life. I mean, I've got the How to Build Your Baby's Brain, and it just I want to be, I haven't been a grandmother before, and I want to be the best grandmother I can. Not that I'm going to learn that in six minutes, but, but maybe I'll get a takeaway. Well, so uh, let's say this. We're born with a certain amount of genes, about 40,000. Um, really, we, we're born with we're we're born really with a certain amount of genes. They can't all express because they can't express themselves. Our environment will help us select which genes live and are are used, and which are suppressed and not used. And so, the environment has a huge impact on our thinking. And so mother starts that environment and starts that healthy development by bonding with her child. You know, children, uh, even the situation really begins in utero because from four months on in utero, baby is learning a complete language by the sound and rhythm and meter of his voice that baby is as it's through an echo chamber in uterus, in utero, in the womb. So at the end of the day, the, um, the, uh, the environment we organize for a baby has everything to do with how they develop. And a well-bonded is better at everything. 
They think better. They act better. They stick to problem solving better. They feel better about themselves. They have more security. And mother is basically so important. She's just about everything in the beginning. Baby doesn't even see her as separate. Baby sees mother as an appendage. And we we live in a, a world where mother has to work mainly. And if mother is working, I offer compensation, things that mother can do at home that can help compensate for time away. But one of the most critical things is that baby really feels abandoned when she or he is separated from mother. And uh, all many other cultures just don't separate. Mother is either slung over baby's back and, you know, mother takes baby along if she's farming, she brings them into the farm, and in uh, in in Asia, she may have the be in pad with a child wrapped in her back, or might have baby in a sling and a baby sling, and take baby along with her so baby's being socialized and socialized with mother, or uh, baby sleeps with mom and dad. So it's only in the West that we separate from baby, or we. Roommates, we are roommates with baby for nine months, and then we stick them in a room all by themselves and shut the door, and they're in terror and feel abandoned and frightened. So bonding, if I had one thing to say to mother, the most important thing you can do for baby is bond. And because we all have to work, we have to find ways to compensate for time away and ways to make bonding possible, even though we're working. You know, uh, with the best of all possible worlds, companies will start putting nursery schools attached to companies so that mother can take breaks and see baby and have lunch with baby and baby learns to expect mother. And so they don't feel abandoned or frightened. You know, babies have no time, sense of time or space, so they don't really know if mom is leaving them. They don't really know if she's coming back. So they're very frightened when it's, it's sort of, like for everything in their mind. So if we can set up a pattern for baby where they experience mother during the day, then they're not frightened. When a baby is put in a nursery, we can, I mean, it's not the popular thing to say, but we can test cortisol in the saliva with a a stick, a little measuring device, and we can tell if baby's cortisol is elevating, and it elevates hour by hour as the baby is separated from mother. And the other thing I would say is the first three to five years are the most important. Some of the damage that's done by cortisol, if baby is stressed, like we've somehow gotten into this habit of letting baby cry themselves to sleep. Of course, that just gins up the cortisol. And if it's consistent, it changes brain architecture and impulse control. And that's forevermore. And when that happens, if we... Uh, after three years, if it's consistent, there's very little we can do about it. Well, that so was a great, and not to cut you off, we've got about 30 seconds before the show closes, and that was a great, for me personally as an upcoming grandmother, that was a great bit of information to, to know. For others of you that want to find out the only way out is through a 10-step journey from grief to wholeness, you can find that on Amazon. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for being with yeah. us today and sharing sharing your knowledge, and I know that many will benefit. 
Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. 